I uh, appreciate his foresight in knowing exactly when he was going to get the flu. Let us pray together. Pray now, Lord, that your word will come to us, but not just with human words, but with the ministry and the power of your Holy Spirit into each of our lives, our minds, our hearts, our, our wills. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost 20 years ago, people from Westminster Presbyterian and people from Moorpark Presbyterian, where I served as pastor, partnered to help a church in Kenya. I think if you look real closely, you'll see a John and Pat Burnett in that picture somewhere. We went to Makobe for the first time in 2001 to put a roof on a church and to help build an orphanage. Now, we accomplished what we set out to do. You can see the roof on the church. But the church still needed a floor over the, the rough cement slab. It needed windows and doors. And so, of course, all of that cost money. Uh, they need money. They took an offering and they held an auction. Now, they did not pass the plate down the rows for the collection, and that was a good thing. Because some of the gifts were chickens, eggs, coconuts, and 15-foot-long pieces of sugar cane. I think of the second slide, yes. I think that John Burnett had something to do with me having that chicken at the auction. I, I think I'm going to blame you for that, that I ended up with a chicken. Uh, people also brought forward money. Now, monetary gifts range from about uh, five shillings, which is seven cents, to several thousand shillings, which is about $50. And we knew how much each person gave because the pastor would stand, and as people gave their money, they came up forward and gave their money, he would announce the size of each person's gift to the congregation and the guests. And I have to wonder how that kind of offering style would, would play here at Westlake. Now, it would probably be a little bit different because of much greater resources. Instead of a live chicken, a live uh, Lexus. Instead of a few, a thousand shillings, a thousand dollars. But of course, if two eggs is your equivalent of two weeks' income, as it was for the people who gave sacrificially in Maccabi, then we would celebrate that sacrifice and recognize what it means. Just as Jesus honored the gift of the poor widow who gave all she had. I don't think your elders are likely to hold up each person's giving statement next Sunday and just read off the amount. I mean, that's not going to happen. And I'm also not up here today to sneak in a stewardship sermon when it's not even October. I'm preaching along with your pastors about the words of Jesus in the parables. And if I'm talking about money today, it's simply because Jesus talks about it. It's, it's kind of hard to avoid. Jesus said more about money and its use than he said about more spiritual things like, like prayer or heaven. Jesus talked a lot about money because he knew that getting our heads straight in this area is the key to getting our heads straight in a whole lot of other areas. In Luke 16, 
1 through 13, Jesus tells a, a parable about a man who is a financial realist. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that the master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, this is a very difficult parable to interpret. Many people consider it to be the most difficult. But it should not be too difficult for we Presbyterians because of who we are. One wit has pointed out that the Presbyterians are a Scottish sect that would rather be forgiven its debts than its trespasses. Someone else has said that the Presbyterian Church is the Republican Party at prayer. Now what that says about the independents and Democrats here today, I don't know. And those, of course, are cracks or jokes. But they point to something that tends to be true. At the time of John Calvin, the, the shaper of our, of our church tradition, capitalism was on the rise in Europe. And this has worked its way into the church and influenced the kind of people who feel at home in the Presbyterian church. And so it is safe to say, in very general terms, that Presbyterians are money-wise. They have a tendency to be thoughtful about their investments. They're generally conservative by nature. I'm not talking about this radical congregation, of course, but I, I'm talking about all those others that it's safe to say, not just 
as a joke, that we know that business is business. And so when Jesus sits down to tell a parable about business, it ought to be right in our wheelhouse. I don't really know what a wheelhouse is, but I think this should be in there, wherever it is. Jesus' parable is about as choice a set of rats as you're going to meet anywhere. The first crooked character we meet is the steward, the financial manager. He has followed a career of embezzlement. His fraud is finally discovered, and he's called to account for what he's done with the master's money. And in verse 3, Jesus gives his realistic appraisal of his situation, his danger. What shall I do since my master is taking away the stewardship from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. And then beginning in verse 4, he makes a plan. So he will be welcomed into the homes of his master's creditors. He calls them in one by one and invites them to change the records of what they owe his master, reducing a hundred measure of oil debt to 50, reducing a hundred measures of wheat to 80. Now we can understand what Jesus is talking about here in terms of first century business practices in Israel. You see, Jewish law forbade Jews from lending money to other Jews with interest. But of course that gets in the way of business. So the rule is avoided by stating the debt not in terms of money, but by stating in terms of a commodity like wheat or oil. An IOU is written that reflects the value of the original debt plus an additional amount, say a 25 or 50 percent markup. This way there is no written record no written indication that interest is being charged. It's all carried as a part of the original debt. But of course, this kind of game playing with the law is no way for a pious person to behave. So such transactions are carried out by stewards without the, the master's formal knowledge. There's no paper trail to lead to the boss. Plausible deniability is preserved. And so understood this way, the parable presents us with a steward faced with a sudden loss of employment who allows his master's creditors to rewrite their IOUs so they no longer carry interest. And then they will welcome him into their homes and employ him after he is fired. Either because they are so grateful or because he is now in position to exercise a little bit of judicious blackmail. He knows where the bodies are buried. Okay, the master returns, and he catches the dishonest manager in the act. This is the climax of the story. And you can see how the disciples are all set for some word of judgment. The disciples, the master catches the steward cheating him a second time, and now he's really going to lower the boom. And this is going to be a parable about what happens to you when you cheat. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and I suspect that there's a twinkle in his eye and there's a smile on his face 
And he says, Then the master returned and saw what the manager had done. And he said, I want to congratulate you on how clever and how how far-sighted you are. We didn't see that one coming. But think about it. What else can the master do? He cannot publicly object, or he will be admitting that he knew about those horrible, unlawful contracts. And so as a pious man who cares deeply about the law, he publicly commends his steward for canceling those those awful IOUs. The steward is finally conforming to the law of God. And the master is seen applauding his obedience. You see, we tend to think of, of this as a parable about a bad man taking advantage of a good man. But actually, it's about a bad guy who is smarter and more focused than the other bad guys. Everyone in the parables a crook. But what is shocking is that Jesus seems to agree with the master's assessment of the steward's wisdom. I mean, all the disciples are there, they're going, huh? They're looking kind of puzzled. And then Jesus says to them, You know, I wish that you were as serious about your faith as these bad guys were about their badness. And then to underscore his point, Jesus says, My advice to you is to use your money, tainted as it is, to make friends for yourself for my sake, so that when the end comes for you, your friends may welcome you into the eternal dwellings. We'll return to that hard verse a little bit later. Okay, what is Jesus saying about our, our Christian lives? I mean, what does this dishonest steward of all people have to teach us? Well, first of all, he is a person of action. As soon as he learns he's going to be handed his pink slip, he asks, what shall I do? He sees a problem, he heads into it. He acts. He doesn't just react. Second, he is a fact-facer. He realistically confronts his situation. I am too out of shape to start digging ditches. I'm too proud to start begging. Professional football coach was hired to take over the team in the middle of another bad season. And when he arrived for his first day, he was handed two sealed envelopes. He was told that they were a gift from the previous coach. He was told that when he got into difficulty, he was to open the first sealed envelope. Well, he got into difficulty, and he opened the envelope, and it was a note of encouragement from the former coach, telling him that he should blame everything on him. The new coach should put out the word that the problems of the team are the responsibility of the former coach. But if the disappointment of the season continued, as it did, he was to open the second sealed envelope. The second message simply read... Prepare two envelopes. 
Well, Jesus says that we need to recognize when it's time to prepare our envelopes. We need to see our issues, our options, clearly. I mean, the steward might have tried to just wish away his situation or, or forget it in meaningless activity or an alcoholic haze. But he doesn't do either. He knows that it's time to plan his future as best he can. And if Jesus were spelling out the lesson of this parable, he might say at this point, it would be good if all people could see the issues of life this clearly. You are all stewards of what God has entrusted to you. One day you are going to give an account. Think of how it will stand with you on that day and prepare for it. I mean, people prepare themselves for all kinds of things, the majority of which never happen. But they do not care enough for their souls to insure themselves against the one thing that will certainly happen. 100%. They must meet God and they must give an accounting. In verse 10, Jesus tells us that we are being tested. And that we will never advance to a higher position until we demonstrate our faithfulness in a smaller position. He says that the way we fulfill a smaller task demonstrates our fitness or unfitness to be given a greater task. This is also the theme of the parable of the pounds, or one of the themes. Dave Rohde will preach on that next month. Here Jesus extends the principle to eternity. He says, on earth you are in charge of things that aren't really yours. You cannot take them with you when you die. On the other hand, in heaven, you are going to get what is really and truly and eternally yours. And what you get in heaven depends on how you use the things of earth. What you are given as your own depends on how you use the things of which you are now only a steward. So the point of the parable is that we need to put first things first. We can't have it both ways. That's what Jesus says in verse 13, a verse that's usually pulled out for stewardship sermons, not like today. He says, No servant can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and despise the other, he'll be devoted to the one and and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with being thrifty. But he does say that the kingdom of heaven is not reserved for the cautious. He says the one who loses his life will save it. So we need to face the fact that a person is not a fool to spend what he or she cannot keep to gain what he or she can never lose. That's just smart. George Buttrick said of the steward, this rogue acted with foresight. He bought friends with money. Of course, Jesus is not suggesting that we get our friends involved in some crooked scheme so we can blackmail them into helping us. But he does say, as we turn back to verse 9 that we skipped over, he says something kind of hard to understand. Make friends for yourselves by means of your tainted money, 
so that when it fails, your friends may welcome you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus is not talking here about salvation. Salvation comes to us only as a free gift of God through Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting anything else. But Jesus tells us clearly, and he tells us several times, that our future opportunities in the eternal service of God largely depend on our stewardship of the opportunities we are given here on earth. We are undergoing a test. And the standard, the measurement standard, is the impact we have on other people. Now, I am not prepared to build a whole, a whole theology of heavenly rewards on one verse. But we should not ignore what Jesus says here either. We can't take it with us. I mean, hearses do not pull U-Hauls. But in some special way, Jesus says we can stand it on ahead. The imagery of Jesus' words in verse 9 suggests a time when we are each going to stand before God, stripped of all we possess. There will be no bank books, no properties, no securities, no university degrees, no titles, no marks of honor. And as we stand before God, he will say to us in the imagery of this verse, is there anyone here who will speak for this person? And Jesus suggests that if we have spent what is ours in the service of our brothers and sisters in Christ and those we are seeking to bring to Christ, they will come and they will welcome us into the eternal dwellings. A boy will come forward and say, my parents never would have brought me to church. I never would have found Jesus. It was up to them. But a youth ministry this man supported reached me for Christ and changed my life. A baby in a mission hospital in Haiti or India where your congregation has missions. And through you, she is tended and much loved in her last hours. And she will say this woman loved enough that although she never saw me, she gave what is hers so I could be blessed. A middle-aged man will say, my life was changed because one day I stepped into an AA meeting at a church building this girl helped build. She moved from the community before it was completed. She never met me. But her gift helped change my life and heal my family. Maybe even your own children will gather around and say, our dad did not give us $5 for ice cream and a quarter for the offering plate at church. He taught us that the business of the kingdom is real business. He tithed and he taught us to tithe. We learned about Jesus from him and we are here because of him. So one day, once there was a crooked steward who did some crooked things to fool his crooked boss. Jesus told that parable to Presbyterians. You know who Presbyterians are, don't you? They are the people who know that business is business. Or do they? When the role is called up yonder, will somebody say of you, she was as fervent in giving as she was in getting? 
Will someone say he faced the true facts of life and had the priorities of Jesus always in mind? Then you'll hear God say to you in the words of Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord and enjoy the treasure. The treasure you actually get to keep that has been stored up for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the challenge of your word. Uh, But thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for helping us know and trusting us to be the people who can grapple with the facts that are laid out for us, to be fact-facers. And these are the facts that you have given us, and you're the one who knows. And so, Lord, thank you for telling us this word. Amen.